1 Samuel chapter 25. We've been doing a series, if you're joining with us, on the life of David. Last week we covered several chapters that are in those years before he became king, after he defeated Goliath. He had these episodes in his life where he has to become a fugitive for a period of time. And I made the analogy that a lot of what happened in David's life in those chapters reminded me of that idea of Robin Hood in that area of of time where there was somebody after him and he got his band of merry men. Now this morning coming to chapter 25 it reminds me of another setting, another fabled situation, this time of a beauty and a beast in 1 Samuel 25. The reason I say that is because in 1 Samuel 25 when we get into the text we're going to meet two different characters. A couple that are married but they are an absolute mismatch. You know the saying is opposites attract. Well these two were definitely opposites. There is the beast by the name of Nabal. As you go through the story, you find out that he is a man who lives in the region that was given to Caleb uh, of the tribe of Judah years ago and to his descendants as his possession. And so he's in this region. He's an extremely wealthy man. It even tells us about how many of the sheep that he has. He's an unusual character in that his parents named him an odd name. Anybody know what his name means? Fool. I mean, how do you look at the baby and go, fool? Well, they did. And he lives up to his name. As you go through the story that they talk about him, his, his description given in this chapter, if you look at chapter 25, verse 3, in the, in the uh, King James says, churlish. The idea of somebody who is harsh somebody who is rude and somebody who is profane and says that his evil, he is evil in all of his doings. His servant later on describes him in the chapter as a son of Belial. It was a word, it was a phrase that meant a very wicked person, a worthless person. And then the servant goes on and says nobody can speak to him. So he's headstrong, stubborn, unteachable. Good thing none of us know anybody like that. His wife describes him later on as a son of Belial. She says that as his name is, so is his game. That he really lives up to being a fool. In fact, she uses a word to describe him that says in this passage that folly is with him. It is a word in the Hebrew that only shows up 13 times in the Old Testament. Every single time that that word nebula shows up, that form of folly or fool, it means somebody who is violent, somebody who is a public disgrace, somebody who has done something that is really reprehensible. Eight of the 13 references refers to sexual perversions. Now I don't know what she's meaning by this guy. Is this guy that perverted that he was violent and cruel to her? Is he somebody that had sexual perversions and that's why they had no children? I don't know. But that is her description of her man. Not a good description. The be- that's the beast. The beauty in this story that we're going to meet is Abigail. Her name means joy of her father. The idea she's described as a woman of understanding. One who's wise. She's described as beautiful. Now my question is, how does somebody like that get stuck with a Nabal? Well, we would assume this. We would assume probably an arranged marriage. Something that was done by convenience, by whatever, but she got stuck with this guy. And so their story and their meeting with David, the day that David meets Abigail and Abel, the day that David meets Beauty and the Beast, is in chapter 25. Let me set the scene. It's an interesting story. It's, it's a fascinating story. There's, but, but as we go through it, and we just learn not only the facts of what happened to David during this time, but I want you to get lessons. 
I want you to get several lessons that are going to stand out from, from this text as we go through it. Now, you and I have been through a period of time the last few months, the last year and a half. We've heard a lot about essential, essential businesses like dog places and bars and different, you know, different things that are called essential. We have been told that we have to do essential deeds like wash our hands and the distancing. In fact, this week I ran into something that was rather odd. My wife and I were going to make a visit to somebody who has gone into a senior center and they had on the front door only essential guests only. Well, I thought to myself, I am not essential. So Deb, you go in. I'm just, you know, it was just an odd feeling to say essential and call yourself that. Well, in this text, let's use that term. There are three essential practices that are illustrated in this story that really are essential, that really live up to the idea of that thought, that word. And so what I want to do is I want to relay those three as we go through the story, just bring them out, these three different ideas that are essential for you to consider and you to employ in your own very life as you go day by day trying to live for the Lord. Let's do number one. There is the essential need of daily renewing or a daily renewal. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me set the story and it will become very clear to you. David in chapters 24 and before that, David has been running from King Saul. He has defeated Goliath as I said. He became the hero. Saul got jealous. Saul hated him. Saul decided that he wanted to kill him. Tried to kill him with his own javelin. Tried to hire others to kill him. Tried to get others. And so David has gone into hiding. He's running in the wilderness. Other Jews who have been picked on by King Saul, they have joined him. There they are. And it said, remember chapter 23 talked about how Saul was after him daily to kill him. And so David's on the lamb. He's fleeing. And as he is fleeing, chapter 24, where we were last week, David has a chance to kill Saul. This enemy of his, this one who's trying to destroy him. Saul is chasing him. Saul stops at a cave to use it as a restroom. David is inside that cave in hiding. And while Saul is relieving himself, David has the opportunity to sneak up and kill him. But David doesn't do it. Even though his men say, get him, get him, get him. And we talked all about how David doesn't take revenge, doesn't, doesn't attack Saul. And the reason he doesn't, he says, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. And so he, there he is. He practices that self-restraint. And when the king leaves, David calls to him. And he holds up the little hem of the garment that he ripped off that he felt guilty for, for cutting off the robe. And he calls to him and he says, why are you chasing me? Why? I've done nothing. And then at this moment, if you remember the last end of chapter 24, Saul makes this comment. When he realizes David spared his life, Saul says to David, he is so moved, he is so broken that he has been so mean and so cruel to David that the passage talks about how his heart is broken within him. He says for the very first time, David, you will be king. He acknowledges that David will replace him. And then he asks David, he says, whatever happens, spare my family. When you come to the throne, don't wipe out my, my children. Don't wipe out my grandchildren. Spare me. David won a great victory. David overcame that, that, that whole temptation to kill Saul. Saul is broken. Saul leaves and stops chasing David at that moment, for a while anyway. He stops. And David, here David can rejoice. He overcame a spirit of anger, overcame a spirit of revenge, overcame a spirit of, of retaliation. 
And so it's a delightful time. It's a wonderful time. David is on a mountaintop. He can go about freely for a period of time anyway. And we come to chapter 25. Chapter 25, David is still in the wilderness area because there's his men, they're still working with him. And the chapter 25 opens up with the, just making a statement. It says, Samuel the prophet dies. The one who had anointed David. The one who had been his counselor, his guide. The one, the very first time he ran from Gibeah, the capital, and went to Ramah, that was where Samuel was. And so David fled from him. And Samuel, you know, remember when, when Samuel went to anoint David, he was fearful of the king. So Samuel was like David. They were on the bad side of King Saul. And so the friendship of Samuel, that old, wise, godly man, it's gone out of David's life. And so David doesn't have that mentor anymore. And then it goes on and tells, okay, what happens is David goes to a region of Paran, the same region where Nabal has his flocks, the, the beast that we talked about a few moments ago. And so while David is in this region, David and his men, they provide protection for all the farmers in that region. As we read in chapter 23, the Philistines every so often, they come in and they invade. They, they come into the territory. They're, you know, they're the, the Taliban of that period of time that comes in and tries to take some things. And, and so David and his men, like Robin Hood and his merry men, they're going to defend the people. They're going to defend the people in this wilderness area. And so David is there stopping these individuals. In fact, Nabal's own servants, go further into the story and you read it. The own servants said that David and his men, they camped with us. They protected us. They were like a wall providing us protection from the marauding Philistines. And so David and his men were there. Helpful to Nabal and his, and his people, though they never ran into Nabal, apparently. So the story goes on that it's time for Nabal's flaw of men, shepherds and whatnot. They're going to do harvest time. They're going to bring in the crops. So David sends a message to Nabal and saying, hey, we've helped you out. You know, we didn't have a contract or anything like that, but we helped you out. How about you being charitable to us? How about giving us something? This is not like the mobsters. Of, of old that says, you buy insurance from us or else you're going to need it, okay? You know, there wasn't that type of, I don't even know what word to use, you know, that ripping people off. David didn't do that. David even says to him, when he, when he says and asks him, he says in verse 8, what you would decide or what you, whatsoever you choose. So it's not a threat. But David's saying, we've provided something for you. How about you providing from your plenty for us? And so that's the account. David's men go to Nabal. They talk to him. Nabal's response is recorded in the text. Let's pick up there. Starting in verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shears and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? And so there's the response. And, and it's kind of funny when you start working through the response. Who is David? As if Nabal doesn't know who David is. Come on, look at what he said. He knows who David is. He even said, David, you've broken away from Saul, your master. He knows what's going on. He's not ignorant of David. In fact, he calls him the son. He refers to him as, you know, this son, broken from the master, and his wife, go a little bit later in the chapter. His wife later on says he's the appointed future ruler of Israel. Hey, folk, he knew who David was. 
He knew what was going on. Absolutely. And then he makes the comment, you know, you know, shall I give of what I have? Well, if you read later on, when it describes Nabal at home after the harvest, it says he is having a feast like a king. He's got plenty to spare. It's not that he's being overtaxed or overpressured. He's got plenty. And he knows who David is. And so his servants who heard this, they found Nabal's Nabal's answer really offensive. And as soon as they heard it, they run to Abigail. And they tell his wife, this is what your husband said. Your husband said this. And when they describe it, and they say, you got to do something, they say, when David's men came, they saluted, like respectful people asking, they saluted Nabal, but he railed on them. And so the, the servants found this to be totally, totally uncalled for what's, what Nabal had done and how he had been so cruel. And they say to the wife, David has helped us. His men were with us. They, he, they were a shield for us. Certainly we owed them something and we could give them something. David's servants, they hear the report and they leave. They leave Nabal's, Nabal's encampment, his farm, his whatever. They leave empty-handed with only some ringing words in their ears that were very harsh and very cruel. And they come back and they tell David. And David hears about it. And when David hears what Nabal said, we read, So David's young men turned their way, went again, came and told David. And David said unto his men, Gird ye every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David 400 men. And 200 stayed by their stuff. Jump down to verse 21. David had said to these men, Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow had in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained to him. And he hath requited me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David if I leave all that pertains to him by a morning light so that there's nobody that can urinate against a wall. I'm going to wipe every single one of them out. Nabal, his wife, his family, his servants. David is mad. David is, let's, let's, let's use common terms. David's ticked. David's vengeful. David's on the march, determined to kill everybody, even the innocent servants of Nabal. Even the ones who are defending David behind the scenes to Nabal's wife. And David, has, has, David had had a change in heart in these moments. Think this through. Think this through. Here is this guy who had victory over a spirit of revenge and anger towards Saul. But all of a sudden now he's marching with vengeance. He is out to kill everyone. What an irony. What, what, it's amazing. You know how sometimes people grow up to look like their elders. Every one of these pictures is not brothers and sisters. It's a parent and child. And you can see the similarities that happen. That oftentimes kids, they look like their parents. Worse yet is sometimes kids begin to act like their parents. Therefore, we have entire commercials of how to help people not to become their parents. And you and I say, as we grow up, you know, our parents, our parents, we look back and said, oh, our parents used to say things like, you know, you better stop crying or I'll give you something to really cry about. 
So some of you heard that too, huh? Okay. And you said to yourself at that moment, I'm never going to say that to my kids. And then what do you find yourself doing? You better stop crying or I'll give you something to cry. Yeah. My dad's famous saying says, you better straighten up or I'll knock your block off. Okay. I caught myself once looking at my, one of my sons. You better straighten. And I was like, stop. Just stop. So we do that, don't we? Sometimes we repeat. We say words or we do things and we become like them. Think this story through. David is becoming like his father-in-law Saul. David is now marching out wanting to kill. And he himself, weeks before, was saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Now he is on the march. Now he's the one chasing somebody. Now he's the one that's determined to go the extra mile in anger and in hatred against Nabal. The irony of the situation just is amazing. David was able to practice restraint towards a superior, but he couldn't do it towards a subordinate. You ever run into bosses that way? They can be nice to their boss, but they're not nice to you. And so Dave, here's an irony. He has self-restraint for a relative, but not for a stranger. Here's an irony. He could uh, withhold, have self-restraint when he was attacked physically. But when he's attacked verbally, when somebody just brings his reputation, now he's vengeful. But it does show the power of words, does it not? That words can really stir us up. And so here he is, he's on the march. My point is this. Yesterday's victories are not enough to keeping us from today's vices. We cannot stop and say, hey, I served God last year, therefore I don't need to be renewing my relationship and fellowship with the Lord today because last year I did pretty good. We need every day to have a time of daily renewal with the Lord. A time of every day pausing and saying, God, I need your help today. Thank you for the help you gave me yesterday. Thank you for helping me overcome the temptation yesterday. But I needed help today. That's why we make this comment time and time from this pulpit. You need to have a daily time with the Lord. You're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough that we can say, hey, I had spiritual food. I had a good talk with the Lord three weeks ago and I'm still running on that same food. We need every day to talk to the Lord. Every day we need to pause and say, Jesus, give me help. Help me with my temper this day. Help me with my thoughts this day. There's an author who's writing on this, Alan Redpath, on this very passage, and he says it so much better than I, so I'm going to bore you by reading this section. But listen closely. Has that ever been your reaction, he says? Doesn't it expose something that ought to make us cringe in the presence of God? This story tells me that however long I may have been on the Christian path, however often I may have overcome one temptation or another, however many times I have defeated sin in one area, it can strike in another and crush me in a moment. I may have overcome great temptation by the grace of the Lord. I may have stood my ground against the fierce onslaught of an enemy in one way or another and yet be tripped up by the smallest pinprick that gets under my skin. The victories which I win by the grace of God and through the power of the blood of Christ cannot impart strength to me for the future. No spiritual triumph in my life can give me power to resist the devil the next time he comes. To show restraint in dealing with one person who has been unkind, high-handed, hateful is no guarantee that an unguarded moment may not come when I will say, I'm going to wreak my vengeance on that person especially if it is someone whom I think 
I, whom I think I am superior to. How tragic it is that after years of Christian experience, men and women saved by God's grace, redeemed by Jesus' blood, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, fall into a silly little trap like that and ruin their testimony. That trap is the temptation to hit back, the passion to pay off the high-handed individual in his own coin. Even though for years we have shown restraint in one area, on one level, on that very same thing when we have been attacked by somebody else, we may suddenly find the pinprick that causes us to explode. Oh my, he knows all about me. He's been in my car. He's been in my house to see how flawed I am that I can do great one day, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do great the next day without the Lord's help. I need, you need, to have a time of daily renewal. Did you have it yet today? Did you do it this week? Did you take time to go to the Lord? Will you this week then do it? Will you set a time, a few minutes every day this week at least, to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you today. Lord, I need you now. Thank you for what you did last week. Thank you for But I need you today for what I'm going to be encountering this week. The lesson that says something is essential is David's own example, that it is essential for us to have a time of daily renewing. Can I give you a second essential out of the story? What happens next? There needs to be the idea of gracious reproving. Gracious reproving. A second essential. In this story, as we continue on, the one who brings the reproving is Abigail. It is Nabal's wife. As the story unfolds a little bit more, the servant who has heard Nabal reject David's servants and the servant who knows now that they're in big trouble runs immediately to Abigail. She wasn't there. She wasn't present when Nabal made his rash, foolish statement to offend David and his men. And so he goes and says, your, your husband, he has done this. The one that, he's, he's a son of Belial. Your husband who is, who is one that nobody can tell him anything. Here's what he did. And Abigail responds. In the story, it says, verse 18, look at how she, when she hears about it, she makes haste. By the way, this is a Proverbs 31 woman before that passage was written. This is a woman who is organized, who's discerning, who's wise, but she's stuck with a real bummer of a husband. And so what happens is it says she makes, she makes haste. She gathers food, and it lists the food, even more than what David asked for. She's including some of the fruits and, and other things beyond the essentials. She gets them all together. She has them packed up, and she tells the servants, start off, get going. Meet David before David gets here. David's on the march. We're going to intercept them. And so she sends them, and then she comes along, and she personally meets David. And when she comes, her encounter with David, the day that he met the beauty, Boy, this is an amazing encounter. Now, I want you to stop and think this through. This was dangerous. This wasn't something that was, that was easy for Abigail to do. It was dangerous on two fronts. It was dangerous back home. Her husband, how would he respond when he found out what she had done? He's a fool. Nobody can tell him what to do. So she would, by doing this, which was the right thing to do, she put herself in danger with her husband. Who else was she in danger of? Who? David. David. How do we know that? What did David say that he was going to do? He's going to wipe out everybody. 
In fact, he even makes the comment at the very end, he makes the comment that I came to hurt you in verse 34. She has no idea how he's going to respond. She doesn't know what David's going to do. She knows that David is angry, and David's acting like Nabal at the moment. And she doesn't know what's going to happen, but she knows she has to intercede. She knows that somebody needs to try to reprove a man after God's own heart who has fallen off the wagon into anger. And so she comes and she confronts him. She knew that there was a need for gracious reproving. Now, before I go any further, okay, and talk a little bit about what she says, can I make an observation that is very important for you and I in 2021? The fact of the matter is, the church today is in need of people doing this very thing. We are in need, you and I, at moments, we need people to give us gracious reproof. There's the need in the church for believers to be concerned about one another. We know that the Scriptures talks about this, that there is the need at moments to lovingly warn and reprove others who may be headed down a road in anger, headed down a road in lust, headed down a road in greed, headed down the road in all types of of misplaced priorities, and they need to be warned. They need to be cautioned. And if you love them, you're going to help them. You won't let your own family member you know, somebody who doesn't know better, you wouldn't let them go walking out in traffic that they don't see. You would come and you would try to help them. And you know the Word of God says the way of the transgressor is hard. You know the Word of God says be sure and your sin will find you out. What you reap you shall So if you see a brother and sister in the Lord that are struggling, that, that all of a sudden they're doing things in their home that are not helpful to their building a marriage. They're doing some things that are not helpful in raising kids that love the Lord. There may be a need for gracious reproof, loving reproof, to getting involved and going to them, basing words, basing counsel, basing warnings on Scripture, not your personal preferences, not your personal ideas when it comes to, you know, how we should comb our hair or what we should do, you know, with attire beyond modest, not personal opinions about, you know, you know, whether they should use this type, listen to, to this or listen to that. That has nothing to do with morality. But you go to them. You talk to them. <laughs> I hesitate, but it's probably appropriate to say, I don't want people coming up and reproving me one way or another about a personal opinion about masks. If you want to wear a mask, wear one. And feel free to do it here. If you don't want to, then don't wear one and feel free doing it. That's something that's a very personal choice. That's not something we're going to say, thus saith the Lord. And so we want to be careful when we talk to people. But when we know somebody is violating the Word of God in morality, we know somebody is violating the Word of God in treating others in a, in a cruel fashion. We know somebody is violating the Word of God in stealing or cheating or lying. We're obligated by the Word of God to go to them. We're helpful. We're loving when we go to them. But we have to have the right spirit. Now, I said this is for the New Testament church. Can I show you why I say that? Not from this story, but watch these passages. 
Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Commanded by God. The practice for New Testament churches. We read, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one brings him back, let him know that he which brings back that sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. We read in scriptures these words where Jesus told his disciples, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay? If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. We read in Thessalonians, if any man obey not the word of this epistle, note that man, yet not, don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. These are obligatory passages. These are demanding you and I to be concerned and exercising caution with one another. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother hath ought against you, go your way, be reconciled, then come into your worship. We read in the Word of God that we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble mind, support the weak, be patient towards all men. We read in the New Testament, preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, but do it in the spirit of reproving, rebuking, exhorting with long-suffering and with truth. Not personal opinions, but truth. The Word of God makes it clear that there is a need for gracious reproving. How did it happen? Well, look at, just look at a couple of verses. Let, let me see what you think out of this text. And it talks about, in verse 22, David's comments about, I'm going to kill everyone, wipe them out, and that phrase of, you know, nobody's going to be left to urinate against the wall. When Abigail saw David, she hastened. She got off the animal. What do you see in, these next, in the next phrase? What do you see that shows she did it in a gracious, respectful way. She did what? She bowed down. Anything else? What's that? Guys, say it again a little bit louder. She calls him Lord, okay? Anything else? Twice it says in verse 23, she fell on her face, she bowed down, she calls him Lord. By the way, if you go through this, I think it's... Like 10 times she calls him Lord. And then look at verse 24. She's asking if she can please say something to him. It's, it's filled. It, what does she call herself, by the way, in that verse, in relationship to David? Your servant? Any other words? Handmaid? Okay. So she comes with a humble spirit. Not, a, not an arrogant, caustic spirit. But she comes and all these things that we can, we can point out. That she's begging him, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Then it gets a little bit more difficult as she speaks. She makes it clear in verse 25, please consider the source. You consider who my husband is. As his name is, so is he. Nabal's his name. You may want to write it this way. I put it in my Bible. Nabal is his name. Folly is his game. Okay? But I, your handmaid, I, I didn't see what was happening. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. And so she's, she's not excusing it. She's not saying, you know, Nabal didn't mean anything. Nabal did. It was wrong. What he did was wrong. And then what she makes, makes comment twice, she says, if I had known, I would have interceded. I would have done something. Then she makes some comments that are really interesting. Like verse 27. Now this blessing, which your handmaid hath brought unto you, 
let it be given unto the young men. Please take it. Play, take this as an appeasement between us. She asked him to do that. Please do that. Then she goes on, she makes some other statements that are really interesting. Verse 20, I pray thee, forgive the trespass. She, she takes some of the fault to herself. I forgive the trespass of your handmaid. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And what does she say? Why is God going to bless you? The end of verse 28, can you read it? Evil has not been found in you. Hold on, hold on, time out. What is she dealing with right now? He's tending towards evil. And she says, this isn't you. This isn't the life you've lived up to this moment. You've you got to stop, David. This is totally out of your character, out of your relationship with the Lord. You've got to stop. And then she makes, she makes a couple other statements. That are, that are, she says, a man is risen to pursue you and to seek your soul. Who's she talking about? Saul has been after him. David knows what it's like to be chased after when, when you don't deserve it. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. What does that mean? It's a, it's a way of what she's phrasing. She's saying, God has taken care of you. God has wrapped you up like a little child. God has, God has been your protector. God helped you. God took care of your situations. And so she basically is saying, you're still in God's hands. Let God take care of your provisions. Okay, I'm giving you some things, but God's going to meet your needs, whether it's through neighbors or not. You don't have to respond this way. And she makes a couple other statements that are just absolutely... Look at the end of verse 29 as she's talking about how God will deal with people who, are hard, who want to hurt you, David. She says, you don't have to go after them. You don't have to be vengeful. The souls of your enemies, she says, he's going to take care of them. And she refers to God doing what? with those souls of his enemies. Taking a sling and casting them out. Who do you think of right away? What, how God helped David with who? With Goliath. She knows about it. She knows about it. She's reminding him how God has cared for him. How God has taken care of him. How can you do this? How can you do this against the God? You aren't justified, David, in killing Nabal. God is your provider. Not Nabal. You aren't justified being so angry and so vindictive. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint thee ruler over Israel. God's got plans for you. God's got a whole plan. You're going to be one day king over Israel. Take the long look, David. You're going to vent your anger, your rage, your lust, your gossip. You're going to vent it right now. You're going to let somebody have it, but later on you're going to what? You're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. Be careful, David, what you're doing. Because she says that this shall be no grief unto you, nor offense of your heart unto my Lord, either that you have shed blood causeless or needlessly, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with you, and it brings you up, remember your handmaid. In fact, David knows. David knows how, how, how this is true. What he was headed for, what he was doing was so bad because he makes this comment in verse 34, as the Lord God of Israel lives, which has kept 
me back from hurting you unless you had hasted and come to meet me. Surely there had been left of nobody of Nabal's family. He's saying, he is saying, what I was headed for was wrong. But she tells him, she tells him, she's basically saying, David, don't do something you're going to regret. David, please let God deal with Nabal. By the way, doesn't that fit Romans 12? Vengeance is... Yeah, add that last part. Thus saith the Lord. David, don't give in to this temptation of anger, frustration, whatever you want to call it. You know, it, it's, it, this took courage by this woman. Tremendous courage. We already brought that out. And when she comes, she's basically saying just these few statements. That, by the way, when you go to somebody and you talk with them, they're pretty much the same statements you need to make. When you're talking to somebody, take the long look. You're better than this as a Christian. You don't need to stoop to what the world is doing. You, you, you need to remember what God's plans for you are. Don't jeopardize God's plans for your future. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, somebody asked me a, 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 a comment. Let me, let me get to this one, then I'll make my point. There is the need for humble responses. That's our third issue. We have the need for daily renewal. We have a need for gracious reproof. Now we have a need for how David responded. A need for a humble response. In this story, David, as we already read a little bit of it, David says, man, thank God that you came. Thank God that you came. He says, otherwise I would have, I would have done something. Verse 25, 35 says, he received of her hand that which she brought. He says to her, go in peace. See, I've hearkened to your voice. I have accepted your person. You know, that's an interesting phrase. I've accepted your person. David listened to the advice of a woman. Now here today you say, how dare you say that? How really degrading. No, no, I'm saying in that culture. Were ladies the teachers of those days? No. Basically the ladies were supposed to stay at home. You know, stay home. She came out and she is reproving David. He didn't reject her for that because what she said was right. Well, he doesn't reject her because she's related to Nabal. He's mad at Nabal. She's part of Nabal's team. He doesn't reject her. He listened to her. He doesn't reject her for, by saying, she has no idea what I've been through. She isn't living in rocks and caves. She's got a nice house. She's got a fridge filled. You know, she doesn't know what it's like. He, he doesn't do this, which so often happens today. He listened to her, and he makes that comment, you kept me from sin this day. Can I, can I suggest that David makes a statement that is so hard for us to say? You are right. I... See, you can't even say it. Okay. <laughs> it's difficult for us to even get it off our lips. But he listened to her. He receives the food, and then what happens is he goes away. Now, here, let me, let me answer somebody's question. Somebody said, how do you keep saying David is a man after God's own heart? Because God said he was. Okay, but how do you keep saying that? Look at the things he did. He's out to kill Nabal. You want to see some things? He really gets into mess next week. We'll pick that up. But it's like, how could David do that? Well, number one is this. This phrase isn't saying David is perfect. When we say that he's a man after God's own heart, he isn't perfect. No one is perfect. All of us are 
sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us achieve the perfect standard of, of God's 100% holiness. We're, we all fall short. That's why we need a Savior. Because we fall short. We have come short of the glory of the standard of God. And so we're not saying that David was perfect. Nobody, nobody in this room would dare suggest that David's perfect and sinless. We're saying he is a forgiven sinner like you and I are. And praise God that he forgives sinners. Okay. So the term was also a phrase that's used in his early years. Okay. That's when it's given to him. And a lot of his psalms are written in his early years. Read those psalms. Man, oh days. This guy hungers to be with God. He writes about how he craves God's presence, how he wants to be within fellowship with the Lord. And, and here, when we, when we think about David, can I tell you what I really think about David when it says, why is he called man after God's own heart? Because he has a unique ability to listen when he's confronted. It happens time and time again that David has a humble repentance. He gets himself into trouble he makes bad choices, but when confronted, he repents. He changes. He all of a sudden says, you were right, I was wrong. A humble response. How do you respond when you're confronted? How do you respond when somebody says something to you? Do you get angry? Are you are an individual that you start offering excuses or you blame others? You defend it by saying, others do it too. Or, or you pause, listen consider. Do you ever admit wrongdoing? There are some kids here who have told me that their parents never, ever admit wrongdoing. I don't know how true that is, but that's the way some are perceived, that they're like Nabal. They never listen. You can't talk to them. It's a shame. How is it when, when all of a sudden you hear a message? Do you ask God to examine your heart or you just brush it off? Do you, do you walk away from here? Do you walk away from a conversation with your spouse saying, I genuinely want to change? I'm going to change. I'll leave those questions here and I'll read some real life situations to you. Ask you some. How do you respond? This way? When somebody points out that you have the propensity to get angry quickly. When somebody confronts you about having a very critical spirit, when somebody comes to you and says, you know what, you complain an awful lot. When somebody comes to you and points out that you use cuss words in your speech, words that aren't appropriate as a Christian. When all of a sudden your spouse says to you that you're not patient with the kids. Or your spouse says to you, you don't pay much attention to me. Or all of a sudden a coworker makes a comment that you slough off when you're at work. Somebody makes comment about you telling some really dirty stories that shouldn't be coming from your mouth. How do you respond when others say you're not a real good example to your siblings? How does, it, how does your heart respond when somebody points out and says, you know what, you don't come to church regularly? But the scripture says, not forsaking the assembly. Somebody says, I'm going to stop this conversation because you're talking about other people and I think it's inappropriate. How do you react? How do you react when it's pointed out that you've been dishonest and I think you're lying 
and distorting the truth? How do you react when all of a sudden a classmate says, I saw you cheating at school? And that's wrong. How do you respond when somebody says, you haven't been real friendly to strangers and not been real hospitable? How do you respond? Defensive? God, is it true? David had an attitude where David all of a sudden, he says, I got to change. Now, wrapping up the story, what happens is David goes his way, Abigail goes home. You can read the rest of it where Abigail goes home and when she gets home, Nabal's feasting the crop and he is so drunk she doesn't talk to him that day. She knows it won't pay, make, it make any difference to tell him what happened and so she waits until the next day and when she sees him the next day the passage says that she tells him what almost happened to him because of his foolishness and his selfishness. How he almost got wiped out 24 hours ago. And the passage makes the comment that when he hears this, his heart died within him. I don't know what that means. Some of you are better at at all this knowledge, but I don't know if it means he went into shock. I don't know if it means that he suffered a heart attack. I don't know if he had a stroke. He didn't die, the passage says, for another 10 days, but he does die. I guess God did take care of him. Just like Abigail said God would. And so what happens then, David comes and David hears about him dying and David comes because he has been so impressed by this, this woman whose beauty wasn't just on the outside but beauty was on the inside and wisdom that he comes and takes her to wife. Now, I don't know this for a, of all the details but like I said at the very beginning, she's living, her husband's living in the land that was given to Caleb who is from the tribe of Judah So they may have been related somehow and so David may have been acting like the kinsman redeemer because she's had no children by Nabal but she has children by David later on. Killian is the son. I don't know that fact but I do know this. I do know that this story teaches me three essential lessons. It teaches me that you and I have a need for going to the Lord every single day and saying, God, help me. God, help me. I commit this day to you. Help me at work. Help me in my marriage. Help me in my family relationships. Help me at school. I need you, God. Lord, I need you. I know this, that I need it at times. I need to give it at times. Gracious reproving. You need it at times. You need to give it at times. Gracious reproving. I know that when it happens, when folk will come to me, I need to have a humble response. When somebody comes to you, you need to have a humble response. And the reason that we want to make sure that we respond appropriately is because of what God has done for us in the past. Remember how he protected you, David? What God's going to do for us in the future, he's going to establish your throne. We We don't want to risk any of that. We don't want to offend, especially as you and I are sitting here this morning and we're coming to a service that's called communion where we we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, how Jesus has given his life so that we can not only have the promise and the assurance of heaven, but we can live in this life for the glory of God, that we can say no to temptation. We can say no to anger or whatever it be. 
And as we celebrate what Christ has done these next moments, we want to make sure we're right with the Lord. We want to make sure that our renewal is up to date, that we've got a humble response. And if you've been graciously reproved by the Spirit of God these minutes, you want to make sure you're right with the Lord. You're here this morning, and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven. I'm going to give you that opportunity and make it possible. We're going to have some staff that are going to that door. In the next couple minutes, they're buzzing the kids now, and the kids are going to come and join us, but we're going to do some singing. And when we do some singing, you're welcome to step out and see these people that will be by this door, and they will gladly show you from the Word of God how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven.